Do you know what triage is? You know, familiar with that term? Think dialing 111, ambulance call-outs, accident and emergency departments. Now, triage came about under war conditions when frontline hospitals noticed something significant. Medical staff realised that in the heat of battle with casualties flooding in, about a third would die despite immediate treatment, and another third would live even if that treatment was delayed. But it was this middle third that if you could treat immediately, it was a matter of life and death. So a third were going to die no matter when you got the treatment. A third could wait, but that third, it was a matter of life and death. And that's where the word triage comes from, try, T-R-I-A-G-E, try for a third, three. So the goal of triage, when you go to A&E, is to assess who needs to be treated first. It's not a first in, first serve. So if you go in for a cut finger, you may have to wait for a few days to A&E. And full credos to the Christchurch Hospital's accident emergency department with the mosque attacks. Combined with the triaging done by the ambulance and with the A&E, I'm sure lives were saved as those professionals knew who to treat and who could wait and safely be treated after. Now imagine in a modern New Zealand A&E department, a doctor spending time stitching up a superficial cut while someone in their next cubicle is dying of internal bleeding. Imagine the fuss, and rightly so. And we're going to see something like this this morning. Triage gone extremely, horribly wrong. Someone who can wait to be treated is looked after, while someone who needs immediate treatment is delayed. Oh, I wonder what Jesus was thinking. We'll find out when we open up the passage in our journey through Mark, for chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. So we've got a bit of crisscrossing here. If we remember a few Sundays ago when we looked at that passage, it was on the way from the Israel side of the lake, Galilee, over to the far side that there was a ferocious storm that Jesus calmed. Over on the far side of the lake, Jesus met a demonic, someone possessed, and he cast the demon out. But the onlookers were so distressed, they pleaded with Jesus to leave. So immediately he got on the boat and he crossed over to the other side. And this is where we pick up the story. He's back in Israel, people know who he was, and a crowd gathers. Verse 22. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So just as the disciples pleaded in the boat, and the demon-possessed man fell on his knees before Jesus, so this father does both. He also falls at his knees and pleads. Now, what do we know about this man? What's his backstory? Well, he's not just any old dad. No, he's right up there. He's a synagogue leader, ruler, no less, a pillar of society, well-respected, well-known in the community. Now, up till now, the religious leaders have been opposing Jesus. Yet here we have a religious leader that's willing to ignore, to go against the establishment's view, risking his position 
risking his reputation all to save his daughter. And we get a hint of why he does this in the term, my little daughter. My little daughter is dying. In the original language, the term for my little daughter is a term of warmth and affection. It's a little bit like today, a dad calling his young daughter, my dearest girl, my sweet pea, my honey. Those terms that dads sometimes have for their little daughters. Oh, this is what this father is like with his daughter. He loves her and is deeply concerned about her medical condition. Verse 24. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. So Jesus agrees and all appears well. But as they move off, the disciples and the father and even the onlookers uh, cannot imagine the interruption and the disruption that's about to happen. In verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now we've looked at the backstory for Jairus. What about this woman? What's her background? Well, whereas Jairus was at the top of the heap by gender, uh, religious standing, by education, this woman's at the bottom. Her chronic 12-year-long condition has made her poor, and unclean. Now, poor we can understand. No medical insurance. You know what it's like in New Zealand if you go private? Cost you an arm and a leg. No wonder she's poor. 12 years paying for doctors. But what about unclean? Why is she unclean? Well, her hemorrhaging, her bleeding is most likely due to a uterine condition, but not to be confused with a normal and healthy menstrual cycle. Now, in the law given by Moses in Leviticus chapter 15, there's a very clear description of what must be done in this situation. Leviticus 15:25. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has a discharge. So imagine that. Twelve years unwell, sick, chronically sick, but also 12 years unclean. Now, this uncleanliness was transferable. Anyone who had contact with her or any furniture that she's touched or sat on or anything like that become unclean themselves. It's transferable. They're unclean until evening where they then have to wash their clothes and wash themselves. Now, in those days, they had no running water. All of the water had to be brought and carried in jars. Imagine that, having to wash at the end of the day and then wash your clothes all that time. It would have been very difficult in her family situation. Everybody would have been unclean all the time. It really limited her social interactions. Could have even got her thrown out of the family house. Similar to leprosy, where lepers were ended up outcast. This was not so bad, but there's a similar sort of social embarrassment social barriers because of her medical condition. So she suffers every day, every year for 12 years. She's probably feeling crook, you know, she's feeling unwell, but also socially, emotionally and financially, this woman is in a bad way. Jairus, on the other hand, is respected, no health concerns or social barriers. Yet these two people from opposite ends of the social spectrum have something in common, two things. They're desperate with nowhere else to turn, and they both have faith in Jesus. 
as we'll see. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus had just exercised a demon, not one demon, but 6,000 demons from a man that no one could control. And here Jesus is healing a woman that no doctor could cure. Isn't Jesus our great physician? And see how Mark cleverly weaves through these accounts the sense of who Jesus is. Jesus is incomparable. He has no equal. No one comes close to Jesus when it comes to his compassion and his power. And if we had left it there, it would have been quite good and Jesus could have carried on his way, but he doesn't. He delays. There's a twist to the story, one of two that comes in here at verse 30. At once Jesus realised that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Now on the face of this, this is a foolish question. Who touched me? Well, you're in a crowd. People are pressing against you. Lots of people touched you. But nobody had felt the power leave Jesus except himself and one other. And it was the woman. And she's now mighty nervous because even though she's in the crowd, she's been called out. Will she continue to slip away and hope nothing happens? What will she do? Verse 33. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet trembling with fear and told him the whole truth. Jairus had just recently fallen at Jesus' feet in hope, hope that his daughter would be healed. This woman falls at Jesus' feet in fear. She's not sure what Jesus is going to do. She stepped over all of these social and religious boundaries. In her mind, she's made Jesus unclean because she has touched Jesus. What's going to happen now? And see the Compassion and the power of Jesus in verse 34. Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Free from illness. Free from social isolation. Free to go back to her family and live with no restrictions. Such a wonderful outcome. Yet, Did she make Jesus unclean? I mean, according to the law, Jesus should have been unclean. He was touched by her. It's a very important truth, an insight into the cross, because Jesus did become unclean on Calvary, on the cross. He did take on her uncleanliness, her impurity. He took on her sickness and carried it to the cross. Isaiah 53, from verse 4. Think of the woman when you hear these words. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. That's exactly what he's done with the woman. On on the cross, Jesus took that woman's infirmities and sorrows, her impurity, and took it on the cross. Yet we consider Jesus stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced, For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and 
by his wounds we are healed. Jesus took on her impunity and her sickness and carried it to the cross. And Jesus does exactly the same for us. He takes our impurity, our sickness, and he carries it on the cross. And that's what we celebrate when we come to communion, don't we? That he has taken our infirmities, he's taken our uncleanliness, and as we break the bread and drink the cup, we celebrate all that Jesus did for us. Jesus becomes unclean so that we can become clean. So back to the story. The woman is called out by Jesus, but she's not condemned. She is commended for her faith. Your faith has healed you, Jesus said. And this is such an unexpected twist to the story and such a positive outcome. Well, at least for the woman. Not so for Jairus. This brings us to the second surprise, the second twist of the story. Verse 35. While Jesus was speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any more? Spare a thought for Jairus. How must he be thinking? If you're a parent, you kind of can put yourself in that situation, having an 11-year-old daughter on death's door. No hope except for this young rabbi who is a healer. And what does he do? He dilly-dallies. He wastes time talking with and healing someone who could wait. This woman had had her condition for 12 years. Surely she could have waited for another two hours Well, Jesus healed his daughter. But that's all gone now. His daughter is dead. And I'm sure he didn't begrudge the lady her healing. But surely this is a failure of priorities to the largest extent. It's like in triage. While a doctor is stitching up a small wound while someone dies in the next cubicle. This seems at face value totally unnecessary and manifestly unfair. And into these feelings of grief and frustration, maybe even anger from Jairus, Jesus speaks, verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Now I put myself in that situation over the week and I found myself getting very cross, very angry at the situation. Yes, I know how it ends. We know how it ends. But if you don't know how this ends, if you're hearing this story for the first time, and some of you might, how would you feel if you were Jairus? Don't be afraid. Just believe. You've got to be kidding, Jesus. My daughter is dead. The love of my life. You could have saved her. What do you mean, just believe? And I can imagine Jesus being very calm with a knowing look, saying, Douglas, Don't be afraid, just believe. And to his credit, Jairus does. Got more faith than I have. Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And so things start to move quite quickly now. Leaving the crowd and most of the disciples behind, they quickly make their way to the family home. There they meet all kinds of commotion and fuss and carry on, but not for long, Out with the professional wailers. Jesus boots them out. Out with the well-wishers caught up in the historics. He closes the door on them. He sends them packing. 
For this is not a time to grieve. The little one is merely sleeping. And of course, the mockers know. They're not stupid. The daughter is dead. But this is Jesus' way of encouraging Jairus to believe. And with mocking voices, the last of the fusses and the mourners depart and the house falls quiet. And just taking the mother and the father and three disciples, Jesus goes to the little girl. Verse 41. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And it's a good news story, isn't it? The compassion and the power of Jesus. Amazing. If we've seen it once, we've seen it many times. Jesus coming through. Jesus had not long exercised a legion of demons from a man that no one can control. He's just healed a woman that no doctor can cure. And now he's restored a life when all hope was gone. No wonder mother and father and the three disciples were astonished. And we see the power of God. Over the last few weeks, we've seen the power of Jesus over nature. He calmed the storm. We've seen the power of Jesus over the demons. Not one demon, but 6,000 demons he cast out. We've seen the power over health, over healing, because he's just healed this woman that's been bleeding. And we also see Jesus' power over death itself. This is amazing, Jesus, that we worship. This is no flash in the pan. This is no shyster. This is no in and out claiming that I do miracles and you never see them again. This surely is the Son of God, most high. Surely Jesus is worthy of our ultimate allegiance Surely he's one we can put all our faith in. And this passage ends with such a quiet, gentle, domestic note. The little girl takes a bite to eat as she is restored into her father's arms. Now, what are we to make of all this? What's our take-home, the implications for us? Now, there are many. (laughs) I had to really narrow it down. This is such a full and a rich story We could be here for quite a while talking about the implications. But let's just focus on faith, a very clear theme through this story. Both came to Jesus with a measure of faith. We see faith as Jairus fell to his knees before Jesus in front of a crowd, and then he persisted with Jesus despite the news of his daughter's death. And we see the the faith of the woman who reached out despite all social and religious convention and touched Jesus. And then when she was called out, instead of sort of moving and running away, she came to Jesus and fell at her knees and confessed. But what about us? What can we learn faith for us? Well, first thing we learn about faith is that it opens us to the very power of God. If these two had not come to Jesus, the woman would still be unwell and Jairus' daughter would, would have died. But they came and they brought their faith. For to the woman, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And we see that the woman's faith was far from perfect. Far from perfect. It was a nervous faith. If I just reach out and touch him, followed by a faith tinged with fear as she falls at her knees and says it was me. So each of us can take courage. Faith can be imperfect. Sometimes it can be halting. Sometimes it can be bold. 
Sometimes it could even be brave, but it can be erratic and even tinged with fear. But what counts is that the faith we have is directed to Jesus. It's not how much faith we have. It's that the little faith we have is looking to Jesus. So today, if you want to experience the compassion and the power of God, bring what faith you have, ratty or grand, tired or weak, and bring it. Bring it to the communion table. Bring your faith to Christ and ask for him to show you his compassion and his power. It's the first thing. Faith opens us to the power of God. Second thing we learn is faith is persistent. It would have been so easy for both the woman and Jairus to give up. She had to work her way through the crowd and overcome a sense of shame and social isolation. How many of us know that? In different contexts, how much of us deal with shame and social isolation? But she pushed through that to reach out and touch Jesus. And you can do that this morning as you take the bread and the wine. She persisted. Why? Because she believed. She had faith. Synagogue ruler. He had to disregard the news of his daughter's death and ignore the laughter and the mocking from the mourners. He had to trust Jesus' claim that his daughter was only sleeping and would soon be raised from the dead. He had to persist, and he did. Why? Because he clung to Jesus. Now, in these steps of faith, they were done despite daunting crowds and intimidation of others. And we like to think faith is exercised in, in, in a very supportive environment, and sometimes it is. But faith is tested and refined in the persistence against the odds. So, this morning, as you come to the table, as you cling to Jesus, despite resistance, remain strong. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Faith persists. And finally, faith is seen in action. Faith starts on the inside. It's a stirring of our heart or our mind. And faith is nurtured and grows inside. But though faith starts inside, it does not stay inside. It moves to action where we step out. So think of Mark chapter 2 and the four friends that dug a hole in the roof to lay down or to bring down their paralytic friend. And what does Mark tell us about that? He says, when Jesus saw their faith, he saw the faith of the four friends. He didn't see the faith of the paralytic. He saw the faith because they dug a hole on the roof. They had turned their faith into action. And Jesus went on to heal the paralytic. And the woman... She could have just kept it all inside, but she did something. She went and worked her way through the crowd and she reached out and she touched the cloak of Jesus. And Jairus, he could have turned and walked away and mourned his daughter, but he walked beside Jesus even into that house, into that room where his dead daughter lay. And he walked with Jesus. He put his faith in action. And all these three can come together in the communion table today. We come to the table with our faith. And though it be small as a mustard seed or battered or frail, we come looking to Jesus and we take the wine. And we persevere. And some of us have had to hold on to Christ even when every circumstance cries out, God doesn't love you. If he did, you wouldn't be facing this. And we hear those voices, but we persist and we cling to Jesus and we come to the table and we take 
the wine. And as we take the bread and take the wine, we are putting our faith in action. And oh yes, we can just go through the motions and we can be a little bit clock watching and just take the bread and the wine. Or this morning, you can open up your heart to a fresh experience of Jesus. If you are desperate to know more of his love, then he is that close to meeting you afresh in the bread and the wine. What a wonderful Jesus we serve. Power over creation, power over demons, power over sickness and power over death itself. And it's all power mixed with compassion and mercy as each of these lives are transformed. And this is the offer that each of us has today as we come to the table. Let's pray.